Father, we have sung of your great gospel, of your love for sinners like us. We have been given so many gifts, the gift of gathering on this day to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you've given us your word, you've given us your very mind, and you've given us your spirit to understand the word and to drive it deeply within our minds and hearts. And that's our prayer this morning, that you would come now in the preaching of your word. Help us to understand this passage, to see the glories of Christ, and to be renewed in the living hope whose name is Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Joy. The word joy, we use it a lot, don't we? Joy, whatever it means, is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. It's the very heart of true Christianity. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid it again and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Last time we were in the book of Luke, we saw Levi, Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, and we saw him repent of his sin. We we saw him and watched him leave everything, all that he had, and follow Jesus. For joy, the parable in Matthew says that he sells all that he has and buys that field. For joy, Matthew the tax collector left everything and followed Jesus. For joy. How do we know? How do we know that it was joy? Well, if you were there in the context, remember last time, Luke chapter 5, verse 29, Levi threw a party for Jesus. He threw a big feast for our Lord Jesus Christ, for Jesus in his house, a feast of fellowship and merriment and joy because Jesus was so valuable to him, the pearl of great price, the great treasure that he had found. And he'd been freed from his sin, freed up to follow Jesus Christ. Now, there is a connection between, listen carefully, between the feasting in Matthew's house and Jesus eating and drinking with sinners in Matthew's house being celebrated. There's a connection between that passage and our passage today. Turn to that passage, then. It's found in Luke chapter 5, the next passage, Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the New Testament, find Luke chapter 5, and I want you to turn there. We're going to need to see it. Find your phone, grab it. If you need a Bible app, let's get it. I want you to see this passage. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Keep that context of Levi's feast of celebration over Jesus in your mind as we read our passage that we will unpack this morning, starting in verse 33. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, the word of our Lord says, And they said to him, they said to Jesus, 
They said to him, the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, the disciples of John the Baptist often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. Parable, just a, just a metaphor. Parable can be used for a number of things, a full story or just a simple illustration or, or metaphor, a word picture. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. This theologically packed passage, I'm going to divide into four different movements. Just as we walk through this. Four different movements which are found in your bulletin. Grab your bulletin and put on your thinking cap. The first movement of the text is found in verse 33, the central objection. The central objection. Let's read it again. Verse 33. Here's the objection. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. Stop there. This is the objection that they had to the disciples of Jesus Christ and really to Jesus himself. And in order to understand that question that was asked of Jesus, really a criticism, in the form of a question, we've got to think a little bit about the background of fasting in Judaism in the time of Jesus. Fasting in first century Judaism was an important and highly regarded activity associated with worship. It was. The Old Testament, in, in the Old Testament, believe it or not, there's only one fast that's mandated for the people of Israel. Did you know that? Only one. And that fast was held to be held on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement for the people of Israel. On that day, the people of Israel were to fast. They were to humble themselves and be broken and mourn over the weight and the burden of their sin. It was a big day, this Day of Atonement. Now, as a point of fact, though, if you read your Old Testament, there's all kinds of fasts that you read about and mentions and times of fasting in the Old Testament. But they're not required of the people of God. But, the, but they happened as the people of God, and as they came under burden by their sin, as they're filled with grief, they're filled with mourning, and they're setting apart time to seek their God. We saw that as we preached through the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 10, he fasted a number of times seeking God in prayer at a time of crisis in, for, in his life 
and the people of Israel, really a prelude to his confession of sin for the people of Israel. The very heart, though, and the reason for fasting in the Old Testament was one of burden, one of mourning, one of sadness. Now, the Pharisees, right, in Jesus' day, their, their version of the Old Covenant 400 years later, right, at the time of Christ, they went beyond the Old Testament so that according to Luke 18, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. It was on Monday and Thursday of, of every week. And they were very pious and put on a sad face. And Jesus kind of called them out on it, you remember, in Matthew chapter 6. Because he knew that externally it looked pretty good, but their heart was not right before God. They were hypocrites when they fasted. So just listen to the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus teaches, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face. As the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by man when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but by your Father who is in secret. Ultimately, the issue here raised by this Uh, that we're going to find out is not that the disciples of Jesus would never fast or that that we don't fast under the new covenant or anything like that. I'm sure there will be times for for fasting and there were times for fasting in the life of the disciples of Jesus. Jesus doesn't even go there. He just smiles and takes the opportunity. But it was true that the disciples of Jesus did not fast with near the frequency of the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. So Jesus takes the opportunity to then strike and to press upon the people the newness that he would bring in. And what I want you to see at this moment in this first verse, okay, here's what I want you to see. There was the old way, still being followed by the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees. And that was the way of religious gloom and mourning and externalism and aestheticism and burden shame and all of that. And then there's a new way of rest and rejoicing and freedom. And the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees were both wondering and critical and frankly concerned about the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself, you don't seem very pious at all. That's a central objection. It's a lack of fasting and, frankly, the annoying joy of the followers of Jesus Christ. They eat and they drink. Now, what's going on here? Well, are you ready? We're going to go layer by layer in this passage and get down to the depth. But here's what I want you to see right now. You've got the comparison of the fasting with its mourning, and you've got a comparison to the disciples of Jesus with their eating and drinking, which in the context of Matthew's feast and their joy. A stark contrast. Are we there? Are you with me? You're going to have to be with me all the way or we're going to be lost. So, that is the central objection. You are not fasting and taking this seriously. So, that central objection moves, moves us to that second movement in the text. Number, number one, the central objection. Number two, the clear answer by Jesus in verses 34 and 35. 
Here's Jesus' answer to their question. Here it is, verse 34. Let's look at it again. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. So Jesus gives them a clear answer, but the answer, as was common in the life of Christ, was given in the form of an illustration to make his point. And the illustration here is a wedding, right? A wedding. We have our weddings, and this is not based on our weddings, but on the weddings at that day in Israel, the time of Christ, Jewish weddings, a little bit different than our weddings. Fundamentally, the point can still be the same, though. I mean, I've been to wedding receptions and feasts after the wedding. Have you? Is that a time for fasting and gloominess? Yes or no? No. That's Jesus' point. Now, at the time of Christ, it was even a stronger point because the newly married couple stayed home for a week-long, pricey, open house, which was a continual feast for a week, a continual time of celebration. And those that were invited to attend that special time, and even some of those that were close, were called attendants to the bridegroom or the friends of the bridegroom. Literally, the text says, the sons of the bridal chamber the guests of the bridegroom. It's, there's more than that. It's just a closeness in this week-long celebration here. So, it's not, is that a time for a week, to fast for a week, a time not to eat anything, a time to put on your gloomy face and be filled with burden? It's absolutely absurd. Would you like to debate Jesus, by the way? not a two-hour wedding reception. This is a week-long celebration. In fact, listen to this, in that culture, the wedding guests, according to Dr. Kent Hughes, were exempted from all fasting due to a rabbinical ruling that said, quotes, all in attendance on the, bri- uh, on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy, end quotes. So Jesus is basically calling his disciples, the attendants of the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom in this illustration. He is there, and they are celebrating together. A week-long party is happening, and you cannot make them fast with gloominess, can you? It's absurd. The bridegroom is here. They are filled with joy in that week-long celebration. Filled with joy in the presence of the bridegroom. Now, but notice verse 35, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then, all right, then they will fast in those days. So this is the first hint that we get in the book of Luke of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the bridegroom is taken away from his disciples, then, oh yes, then they will have reason for gloom. Then they will be filled with sorrow. Then they will fast in those days because the bridegroom will leave The time of his presence will be over. Thankfully, this time of mourning will not last forever. The Apostle John speaks about it in John chapter 16. Just listen. As Jesus is predicting his death in John chapter 16 and verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. 
but you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Understand, brothers and sisters, that was the presence. The time of mourning was between the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus is no longer dead, is he? Is he dead? No, no. We experience the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ through His Spirit. Jesus is with us. Jesus is near us. There is joy in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a weird phenomenon, isn't it? Because there's time even now for fasting. It's like already He's with us and not yet. There's a time future that's still coming when we'll see Him face to face. And we won't struggle with this sin anymore. But ultimately, the time for gloominess is past because of the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have Jesus, and in the presence of Jesus, there is fullness of joy. And there is tension here. Already, it's here, but not yet. We follow Jesus, brothers and sisters. We follow him, not into doom and gloom. But we follow Jesus into the fullness of joy. So Jesus brings in something new. There's something much different here. And he's questioned about it. And he answers with a wedding illustration. And the point is this. In the presence of Jesus, there is joy. So Jesus is bringing in something in the newness that comes in with Jesus, he's bringing in new joy. It's when you have Jesus, it's when you are with Jesus, it's when you're in relationship with Jesus that you will find joy. I'm not kidding when I say this. Apart from Jesus, you will find no lasting joy. You won't. You might find fleeting happiness in your search for pleasures and your piling up of money and your vacations and all of that, and your TV binging or whatever it is. You might find some lasting pleasure there or fleeting. But lasting joy is only found if you are a friend of the bridegroom. Now, guess what? I love how they're attendants of the bridegroom. How does Paul take that illustration of Jesus? He's still the bridegroom, but we are what? Now, we are the very bride of Christ, united to our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit now, united with Christ, united with His death, united with His resurrection, baptized by the Spirit into Jesus Christ. We are one with Jesus. The moment you said, I do, to Jesus Christ, you were united to Him. His death become your death. His life becomes your life. You're adopted into His family. Your sins are gone. You're clothed with this robe of righteousness. He is your bridegroom and you are the bride of Christ. There is such joy there. We've entered in already. He's brought in the newness. The newness of joy. What is that? Well, we're married to Jesus. And that tells us something. It tells us that Jesus loves us. Don't think of broken marriages. Think of the perfect marriage. It tells us that Jesus loves us. It tells us that Jesus said, will you marry me? He wanted to. It tells us that Jesus is married to us. It tells us that he has loved us with a covenantal love that will never end. It tells us that he will never, ever leave us or forsake us. He will never write a certificate of divorce for us. Divorce is not in his vocabulary. He has affection for us. That's what it tells us. He nourishes us. 
He cherishes us as His own body. He washes us with the Word. Right? Ephesians 5, where I'm pulling this. He serves us out of His great heart of love. And there is therefore joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's why if you know Jesus Christ, there is joy. And that's why Levi was right to throw that feast in his, part, in his house. You see the context? He was right. Being converted to Jesus Christ, being in relationship with Jesus Christ is a cause for celebration. That's why one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. So in the days of his flesh, the Word became flesh, and his name was called Emmanuel, God with us. And God with us is a cause for joy. That is why Jesus says they are eating and drinking. I'm here. I'm with them. Is Jesus not with you? Isn't he? He's with you. He's in you. He's not just perched on your shoulder. He dwells in you through his Spirit. No wonder Jesus says at the end of the book of Matthew in his resurrection body, having conquered your sin and death and given you life, and lo, I am with you all the day, even to the end of the age. No wonder why Charles Simeon, the great preacher, was able to watch a converted prisoner stand on the gallows of death and for a half hour joyfully declare his faith, after which, quotes, he then commanded his soul into the hands of Jesus and launched into eternity without a doubt and without a sigh, end quotes. No wonder the prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who struggled with depression on and off of his ministry and his life, For all kinds of reasons. But when he took to his mind and he took to his heart his great Savior and his salvation, then he would proclaim, quotes, There are 10,000 arguments in Scripture for happiness in the Christian, but I do not know that there is one logical argument for misery, end quotes. Jesus brings in a newness. He brings in newness of joy. Now, we've hinted at the nature of this joy, and you're starting to go there, but we're just unpacking this layer by layer. So now we're going deeper. We're going to continue. Hang, hang with me because now Jesus is going to continue his answer. His answer just isn't the wedding, but his answer is going to be found in two parables. As he gets deeper and unpacks the theology of this, he does, so we will too. Let's look then, underneath it all, the chief issue. Number three, the chief issue. The underlying issue as to why the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees continued to fast with gloomy misery on their faces, and the disciples of Jesus are not fasting and seem to have joy. The answer is found in two parables. Number one, the parable of the two garments. The parable of the two garments. Verse 36, and he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now understand then, in this parable, the systems that John the Baptist and his disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are under, those systems are described as the old garment here. Write down Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, the covenant 
with Moses is the old garment in this illustration. The newness that Jesus Christ is bringing in Write down the new covenant. That's the new garment. You cannot take the newness that Jesus brings in, his new garment, rip a piece of it off, and take it into that old, that old garment of the old covenant and put it in there and sew it on. Because when you do that, you ruin the newness that Jesus Bring in the new covenant, that garment is destroyed. Throw it away, buy a new one. And the old one is weird and distorted. It is mismatched. It's mismatched with that new piece. Plus, when you sew it in, then the, the clothing is different and it begins to rip apart and it's useless anyways. That's Jesus' illustration. Both are shot. Throw them both away. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't put something new on top of something old. With Jesus, the new covenant has arrived, and you mix the new covenant with the old covenant, then the new covenant is ruined, and the old covenant is mismatched and will rip apart. You won't wear that shirt anywhere. You wouldn't wear either shirt anywhere. Now, second illustration. He offers a second parable that gets even deeper Jesus is the master teacher. The next one goes to the deepest theology of this. Here it is, the parable of the two wineskins. Verse 37, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. Now, this parable is much more difficult because we don't have wineskins. We do have shirts, but we don't have wineskins, so it's tough. So I've got to give you a little background quickly. So, uh, think of a wineskin is, is, would be made from a sheepskin or a goatskin. And, you know, the neck is kind of skinny, and so that would become the neck of the wineskin. And then the big part, and you'd, you'd pull the hair off, you'd clean the skin, you'd clean the skin up, and then you'd take it from one side of the animal to the other, and you'd bring it together, you'd sew it up, and it would be whatever, stable, and then you could put wine in it and would keep the wine. You got that? All right. And the problem is, is the leather, right, in that old, you've, you've seen it, 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 over time it gets really hard, those wineskins, the old ones. They get really hard and they get really brittle. problem with the new wine, though, is it ferments, causes bubbles and expansion. So if you put new wine into an old wineskin, which is inflexible, then what happens? It can't expand, and what happens? The wineskin cracks, rips, ruins that wineskin, and the wine spills out all over into the ground and is wasted and useless. Oh, Jesus is so good. He doesn't make a mistake when he uses wine in this parable, a symbol for joy. He doesn't make mistake when he uses wine here, a symbol of the new covenant in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He makes no mistake in filling up a wineskin, the idea of filling up a wineskin, the fullness of the Spirit that is brought with the new covenant, a perfect and deep illustration of the old and the new. Now, so you have brittleness of the old covenant And in fact, in Jesus, his spirit will be poured out and the joy and the forgiveness of the new covenant is here. And Jesus is saying, don't go back to the gloom. Don't go back. Don't mix the old covenant with the new covenant. The old is gone. Behold, I make all things new. I am here. Full forgiveness and cleansing has come. The symbol is gone. The shadow is gone. The substance is here. The new age is here. The new wine is here. Don't mix it. So listen, Jesus brings in a new covenant. He brings in a new covenant. Here we go. I hope you're tracking. Are you tracking? Okay. 
This is now the theologically packed section that we have to pay careful attention. Now listen very carefully. If I lose you, we're going to have to re-listen, layer by layer. We have the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees are both fasting in a different way than the disciples of Jesus Christ. You see that? That's clear. They both wanted an answer from Jesus. What's the difference between the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees? Well, let me stick to my notes. The disciples of John the Baptist were under the Old Covenant. The disciples of the Pharisees are under the Old Covenant. The disciples of John the Baptist and John the Baptist the preacher, John the Baptist represented a true Old Covenant believer. A true Old Covenant believer. They knew that they were sinners. The law had shown them their sin and tutored them to the Messiah. And they had trusted in the promises and the hope of the, of the covenant of Abraham. You have the Abrahamic covenant. You have the Mosaic covenant. You have the new covenant. And the old covenant believers had been shown their sin, the disciples of John the Baptist. And they, and they were thrown back to believe and trust the covenant of the promises made to Abraham. To trust in this Messiah, the hope of the Messiah that would save them. And the promises, as they look forward to the promises of the new covenant. And they would say freely, John the Baptist said freely, repent. We need the Messiah. Remember John the Baptist, under the old covenant, told his own disciples, hey, you're disciples of me, stop following me. There he is. Follow him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. Stop being my disciple. Follow him. You see, the old covenant was a covenant that said, do this and live. And your inability to do so would lead you, would tutor you, as Paul says in Galatians, the inflexibility of the law and your own inability and the sacrificial system would show you your sin, would show you your need for the Messiah, so that as a Jew, you would take the whole Old Testament, you would throw yourself back on the promises made to Abraham. You see, remember that God had promised that he would make a great nation of Abraham in Genesis 15. And all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. And this blessing is defined as the blessing of the gospel through the seed of Abraham. What's the seed? It's, the seed is singular. It's the Messiah and his name we find out. Is Jesus. And the old covenant, listen, graciously, graciously would throw them back on the promises of Abraham. The promises that God made with Abraham when Abraham is asleep and doing absolutely nothing. And God himself unilaterally splits the animals with blood. And God himself with the flaming torch walks between this, the cut up animals. And he walks while Abraham is doing nothing and he's asleep. And he says, and he cuts a covenant, and he says, I will make your name great, and I will put a blessing upon this earth through the seed. And God is saying as he walks between, may it be to me as to these cut animals if I do not fulfill my word concerning you. It is a promise that is made while one sleeps and does nothing. The old covenant graciously would open their eyes to throw them back on God himself and the promise made to Abraham. And the old covenant and the inability to do the law would graciously throw the true Jew forward to the promises of the new covenant that would be brought by the promised Messiah, thrown forward to the promises of Ezekiel 36 to sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit 
spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes so that the disciples of John the Baptist would still be under the old covenant. But they were true Jews. They were broken sinners. They were still confused. Don't we fast? And John and all, and Jesus would say, No, no, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the gracious aspect of the old covenant, tutoring us to the new, pushing us to Jesus Christ as our only hope. But we must go to Jesus, says the old covenant. Well, you must go to him. Don't stay here in the shadows. Listen to me. We don't stay in the old Jesus says we must move on from inability and condemnation from the old and move on to the new covenant being brought in in final fulfillment by Jesus Christ ratified by his blood. The disciples of John must move on to Jesus and that's why they ask the question. Secondly, the disciples of the Pharisees. Well, they must move on to Jesus. This is what everybody gets. Everybody gets this. Because here's the disciples of the Pharisees completely butchering all of the covenants of the Old Testament. They actually, came, the law came to, the, to them and said, do this and live. And they said, we, we got this. <laughs> we got it. We can keep the law. We can earn salvation. We're good enough. We can live through our works. And they took the old covenant, they made it a ritual, they made it superficial, heartless, self-made, self-righteous religion. They did not understand the purpose of the law. They did not understand the glory and the hope of the new covenant and the promise unilaterally made to Abraham. They said, we're pretty good in keeping the law. We have the name Jew, we've been chosen by God, we're just fine. And they made following God an external ritual instead of a heart relationship. They completed a whole complex extra law law so that they would be able to keep the law blamelessly in their own strength. And they felt like, you know what? We have earned salvation. I can't believe your lack of piety. I can't believe you don't pray and fast. We... And what Jesus is going to do, he's going to say to both the disciples of John, true old covenant believers, the purpose of your law is to point to the Messiah. I am here. Let's move on to the new. And he's going to say to the disciples of the Pharisees, it's time to stop it. It's time to wake up to the hardness of your heart and your sin. It's time to repent, you brutal vipers. It's time is here. The old is gone. The new is come. It's time to come to the party, Pharisees. It's time to come to the big reception for me. The new is here. I am he. As he preached in Nazareth, and they threw him off a cliff, or tried to. He preached in Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Jesus is saying, the new has come. The favorable year of the Lord has come. Follow me into the new. Let's recline at the table of joy forever. You can be made whole. You can be like the leper. You can be made whole. You can be like the paralytic. You can be made whole. You can be like Matthew and leave it all behind. Leave the old behind and come to me. And here's what's so sad as we close. Here's what's so sad about this passage as we close. We've seen the chief issue. In verses 36 through 38, but notice finally the comfortable status quo. (laughs) The comfortable status quo. Verse 39, and Jesus ends with this, and no one. This is unbelievable to me. (laughs) It really is. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new For he says, the old is good enough. The old is good enough. So, I think he's specifically speaking now 
to the Pharisees, and he will take it up with the Sabbath issue next week where he really drops the gauntlet on this issue. When he comes to the issue of the Sabbath, he says to those who are content with the old, they like the old, their self-righteousness. They love the praise of men. They love to bury the true law of God that probes the heart and gets to the heart so that sin would be exposed and love for Christ would be tutored. And they like to bury the true law under external ritualism. He says to all those traditionalists who think they can please God by their own efforts, if you drink that poison long enough, you will never have a taste. You will never have a desire. You will never have a wish for the new wine. Never. You will never desire it. You will become hardened. You will say, I'm fine. Look at what I have done. Look at my good and all that I've done. I'm better than most. Look at my sincerity. Look at my family name. Look at how many years I've played the piano in church. The old is good enough. There's a stern warning for the addiction to self-righteousness of the old wine. By nature, man, but listen, by nature, man will just keep on drinking the old. The old wine of religion, the old wine of the religion of human achievement is so addicting. Six, mil, six billion are enslaved to it in our world. More or less, give or take a billion. Six billion. The old is good enough. The religion of human achievement. The old way. Comfortable, aren't they? Comfortable with their works. Not yet ready to drink the wine of the true religion of divine accomplishment through Jesus Christ. Clinging to false religion. But Jesus brings something new. Notice in verse 39, there's a word for wishing. There's a word for desire. No one after drinking the old wine wishes. That's the word for desire and affection. It's a heart word. And this is what Jesus is trying to do. He brings the new to us, the new covenant in his own blood, a real a real relationship with the living God where the heart is softened. The heart is made soft by the power of God with new affections and new direction, new loves for Jesus, new hatreds for sin, a new spirit within. This is a work of power that only the Spirit can do as He plunges believers in Jesus into the new covenant. Don't we have new tastes? Can you explain why you now desire the new wine of Jesus? And why you're not content with your own works and your own self-salvation project? It's God and the day of His power. It's the Spirit of the living God. All right. Peter said like newborn babies who long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if... You have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you have taken a long drink, if you've eaten His flesh and drank the blood of Christ by faith alone, we have tasted the kindness of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Oh, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, just like the leper tasted, just like the paralytic tasted, just like Levi tasted and then left it all and feasted with joy. We have tasted and seen. We follow Jesus into the joy of the new covenant. Let me say that again. That's the theme. We follow Jesus into the joy of the new covenant. Are you ready? No going back. Brothers and sisters, don't go back. Don't go back to the guilt. Don't go back to the burden. Don't go back to the shame. Rest in Jesus and run after him into the joy of the new covenant. 
Our joy is not found in our circumstances. Our joy is found in Christ. Our joy is found in a person who brings in the new. He himself is the new wine that we have consumed by faith alone, and his name is Jesus. And that makes sense of our Bible study in 1 Peter. It makes sense of the passage that we're studying on Thursday mornings, God. It makes sense of it. So let me just, I want you to close your eyes as we close. I'm, one, I'm going to be one minute over, or two. I'm going to read this passage, and I want you to know, and I want you to take a deep drink of the new wine of the new covenant. These words are not the old wine for sure. Are you ready? Verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Just listen and let it soak in. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls the final and full salvation when we see him face to face. And then there will be more feasting. And then our joy will be made complete face to face with Jesus, eating and drinking in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen.